Hello, and welcome back to the Wages of Cinema. This is Jack. Um, I just wanted to let you wagers know, uh, listening in, that uh, this is the first part of what's going to be a two-part uh, finale to our Cinema Immersion Tank series for 2016. Um, and then uh, we're going to close out this year uh, by having an episode uh, just taking a look back and reflecting on uh, the whole Cinema Immersion Tank experience. So with that said, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks. And now, for Vertigo. Do I need to mention that there are spoilers for this one? I'd like to assume you wagers coming to this have seen Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 film starring James Stewart and Kim Novak. And if you haven't, well, get off your ass. Watched it? Good. Let's get on with the wages. Don't get too dizzy now. Early on, when the cinema immersion tank began, I knew that Alfred Hitchcock had to come up. Certainly it would make for an agreeable bookend as, as I began it with De Palma's blowout. So... Start with the ultimate student and end with the decisive teacher. I wasn't sure what film. Rear Window seemed like a possibility, or perhaps what would be more interesting as one of his works that didn't get much respect on original release, like Topaz, which I hadn't seen before until this summer. Upon doing, I didn't feel like it warranted watching five times in five days. Not that it was all bad, but it didn't provide enough that could be dug into over five consecutive viewings. Eventually, Andrew and I decided on Vertigo, since it would be a change for the finale as we would both watch it. I was of two minds on it. On the one hand, it's a film about many things, and has been interpreted in so many ways in the decades since it was released. And originally, it was only marginally successful at the box office, breaking even, and not getting particularly high praise from critics, and has a lot of rich psychological and thematic things to to look deeper into. Hitchcock would often say, it's just a movie to people, and mean it, in his sly and deadpan Hitchcock way. Like, you know I'm serious. Uh, but am I? And yet there's only so many movies released by the Hollywood system during the Hayes era, still, let's not forget that, certainly in the 1950s, that gives so much for the audience to read in between and beyond the lines in its characters and storytelling. How Vertigo goes about its story is tremendous in so many ways, even from simply an objective view. And if you hate what the movie does, it provides many tactile things to look at and listen to anyway. But on the other hand, that's the problem as well. It's been too picked apart over time. It's what some might dub a, quote, sacred cow. And it's certainly one that I have seen several times, twice in revival houses, no less, before going into the tank to see it again. I've also seen analyses online over the years. Once again, I refer you to Slavoj Žižek and his analysis in Pervert's Guide to Cinema, but for a straight-down-the-line look at things as fundamental as blocking and how that relates to a character motivation setup, I direct you to check out the nerd writer and his, quote, How Hitchcock Blocks a Scene video on YouTube, and had, informed, and had formed my own opinions on it before this happened. 
That's one of the reasons why I tended to try to go more for films that I hadn't seen before in the tank. It's not only that the possibility of not finding anything new or insightful, but that, frankly, what if the viewings start to grate on me? That I get annoyed or bored by a film that I've for many years called one of the masterpieces of Hollywood. And yes, I know, it's not an original thought. It's on the goddamn poster, no less. So with this challenge in mind, and at first I took it to be more of a challenge, what was there to get out of my second James Stewart film this year in the tank? The other being the impactful studio genre film, Winchester 73. A lot, in some ways, it was good, and in other ways, it made me question in some deep manner what I thought of the film. To start off, I think seeing this again for the first time, uh, and even into the second viewing, I found myself of two minds on what was going on from start to finish. More than I even had before when I was simply watching it as a Hitchcock mystery and soaking up the Stuart and Novak performances in lush Robert Surtees cinematography. And holy moly, those reds and blues and even the grays and blacks are shocking in how crisp they stand out. And most of all, the color green, which I'll expound on as more as we go, as we go along. Sure, it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking on the levels of the writing. Samuel Taylor, who is co-credited for the script, but it's mostly his work that ended up on the screen, has a great sense of how to have characters talking early on that show their humanity and reveal character with just enough exposition to move things, not enough to bog it down ever, and there's some sly wit that can work its way between Scotty and Midge early on, so you know they're not all cold and detached like Madeline seems to be. And also on the musical score. Can, can we all just admit that Bernard Herrmann's score is so achingly beautiful, nothing's come close before or since? And that goes for other Herrmann scores. Also keep in mind he did the music for what was before the number one film on sight and sound, before Vertigo replaced it, and what is currently this one. By the way, that's Citizen Kane, in case you didn't know. But, and here's where the but comes in. This is squarely from a male point of view. And in the past, I took that for granted, somewhat, if not totally, then enough to make me fall in love with the film over and over. I think it may be getting older, and moreover, what's been going on in the world over the past year, or I should say years. How women are presented in cinema in 2016 is certainly in many ways different and more progressive than it was in 1958. And this isn't to say that Hitchcock crafted female characters that lack dimension. On the contrary, I think Madeline, come Judy, is a fascinating character that has a lot of depth. Uh, it's really how Hitchcock shows this that can be disturbing. Unnerving. Even brutal. This is one of those points that has been picked apart by critics for years, and for arguably good reason. Hitchcock had many, many blondes over his career. From Ingrid Bergman to Tippi Hedren and Grace Kelly, and many others in between. Curiously, he wanted Vera Miles before she up and did that womanly thing and get pregnant before uh, uh, production really started during a delay in pre-production. And I wasn't sure if she was a natural blonde or not, but whatever. And he often got on well with them, and then sometimes not really well with them at all. Again, Hedron, allegedly. One should take the aim of looking at the film on its own terms, but does Hitchcock, 
for those who even know a little bit about his career in films, let us. Case in point is what happens in the story about two-thirds of the way through, or three-quarters, however you want to call it, where Scotty has been completely crushed in mind and spirit following the suicide of Madeline. Once again, that darn fear of heights got to him, and he couldn't get up the staircase in time. And a year later, amid a montage of seeing all the things that reminds him of her, which he goes out to find, is Judy, walking along the streets of San Francisco. She looks so familiar, right? So he follows her back to her place, confronts her, but it's more of that you-look-familiar thing, and Judy has to once again give a, quote, performance like she did before, but now she's really herself. We see through a change in point of view how Judy really worked with Gavin Elster in his plot to murder his wife at that tower in San Juan Batista, and even writes a letter to Scotty. This is a curious expositional detail, by the way. It's all for us. And it should be too much information, but it works because of how there's emotion in her voice as she writes and how the camera moves around her, but then throws it out. She still loves him, it seems, and wants to see if she can make it work. The first impulse she has is to run, being, you know, a tool in the crime. But it doesn't work like how she expects. As she walks, strolls along with Scotty, she sees couples holding hands together by a lake, and it would seem she might like that. And then he takes her to clothing shop so he can dress her up as Madeline. Uh, that's not it. Nothing like it. But you said gray, sir. Now, look, I just want an ordinary, simple gray suit. But I, I like that one, Scotty. No, no, that's not right. The gentleman seems to know what he wants. All right, we'll find it. Scotty, what are you doing? I'm trying to buy you a suit. But, but I love the second one she wore. And this one, it's, it's beautiful. No, no, they're none of them right. Oh, I think I know the suit you mean. We had it some time ago. Let me go and see. We may still have that model. Thank you. You're looking for the suit that she wore for me. You want me to be dressed like her? Judy, I just want you to look nice. I know the kind of a suit that would look well on you. No, I won't do it. Judy. Judy, it can't make that much difference to you. I just want to see what you No, look. I don't want any clothes. I don't want anything. I want to get out of here. Judy, do this for me. Here we are. Yes, that's it. I thought so. I don't like it. No, we'll take it. Uh, will, will the thing fit? Well, yes, it might need some slight alterations, but it's Madam Size. All right, dear. We'll have it for you to try on in a moment. Here's where it gets into the disturbing, troubling, unnerving territory, arguably. Seeing these scenes again after so long, it filled me with conflicted feelings. Scotty can't help himself, on the one side, that he has this extreme hang-up with the image of his dead love. More to the point, it's like if someone in a comic book story not a superhero per se, but an average Joe, fell head over heels for, hmm, let's say Black Canary. And this love becomes so intense and passionate, and then, boom, Black Canary dies. Then time passes, this Joe finds a woman walking around along name of Laurel Lance. And she seems so familiar, and the only way to rekindle what was felt before was to, you know, get into that full Black Canary costume. Yeah, just a little more leather and that mask and some heels and 
what have you, and then, pow, attraction fully rekindled. So it's akin to cosplay, only the choice is not there. I'm not sure if Hitchcock intended it or not. It may have been so personal there was no other way to go about in his mind, such as a moment like taking a woman shopping or to the hairdresser and making it as exactly that. What does a director do anyway but make it just that way for someone to act and perform, right? Here, Judy, drink this straight down. It's like medicine. Why are you doing this? What, what good will it do? I don't know. I don't know. No good, I guess. I don't know. I wish you'd leave me alone. I, I want to go away. No, you, you wouldn't let me. And I, I don't want to go. Oh, Judy. Judy, I tell you this, these past few days have been the first happy days I've known in a year. I know. I know because... because I remind you of her. And not even that very much. No. No, Judy. Judy, it's you, too. There's something in you that... You don't even want to touch me. Yes, yes, I do. Couldn't you like me? Just me, the way I am? When we first started out, it was so good. We, we had fun. And, and then you started in on the clothes. Well, I'll wear the darn clothes if you want me to, if, if you'll just, just like me. The color of your hair. Oh, no. However, this feels like a prime example of why feminism needed to step up its game in the decades to come. What if Julie really wanted to say no, firmly, and that Scotty see her as she is? This, of course, by nature of the plot, gets more complicated. Isn't she still acting around Scotty in this final third, one could say? Except that she may be forgetting or not caring about the act anymore of murder. Now they can be free together, right? Eh? Right? But let's put that aside and look at it as it happens all over the world. Women, powerless, must submit and go for a man's demands as to how they should look, how their hair should be done, if they should even show hair at all, what shoes they should wear, all for that moment where everything clicks. And, well, it's time for the fetish to be fulfilled. Make no mistake, at least in some part, this is a fetish film, at least in its climax, in the last stretch. And revisiting this film, I felt uncomfortable seeing how much Judy acquiesced to Scotty, all for, is it love? Is it only the obsession by this point of course there is also the element of the tragedy of all this and that snapped me back around on the third viewing judy doesn't know quite how far this man has fallen in the year since she's played him in the quintessential mind game creating a whole other persona under gavin elster's supervision so that an airtight alibi of a mental state is executed the quote icy blonde type that is so cold and mad and detached as to seem unattainable in Hitchcock's lens. 
by this time I questioned myself. Are they both victims of what they've done to each other? Is it a what goes around comes around thing for Judy? Am I terrible for even thinking this? Does free will simply fly out the window when it comes to massive psychological disorders that are never fully cured? Thanks, but no thanks, Mozart, you jerk. And all of this said, I think that I came back around from my feelings and reactions of, frankly, revulsion, while all the same still hypnotized by the craft on display, in seeing what pulls these characters into such an awful situation and whether Hitchcock was criticizing his own problems as a man or simply showing the truth of it as what made it so hard to take in a feminist critical way. And I looked at the movie as something else again, a work of art more complex than I gave it credit for even in my viewings in years past in the fourth and fifth go-arounds. Vertigo is the truest, darkest, saddest, most harrowing but human statement about what it means to be a moviegoer. To give yourself over to an illusion that can be taken so f much for granted, it's maybe the first meta-movie ever made, if that can make any sort of sense. One might want to say that the former detective, John Ferguson, should know better, but let's keep in mind that the, this is a romantic detective story, or a detective story about romance, one six half dozen or the other. And that for all of Scotty's detective skills, how cool and professional he seems to be in those scenes where he follows Madeline's green car down the streets and then follows her into the flower shop and to the museum and that cemetery and hotel, that he logically is using his skills, but emotionally is not checking himself. He's not consciously letting himself be affected by what he's seeing, but he is from the moment that Madeline walks up from her seat at Ernie's. Hitchcock frames her profile, and Scotty's, almost as the same angle, though his is tilted. Or before that, when he is at Elster's office, and he allows himself to be audience to this story that Elster has about his wife being possessed by this dead spirit leading her 94 miles away during the day. And then there's that painting. What is happening to Scotty is nothing short than getting a cinematic experience in real time with the framing as Hitchcock is doing it so, is creating frames for Ferguson to keep inside of his mind, whether it's by being there as Madeline looks at the painting in the museum and how he sort of frames that hair in the painting with her hair and then the flowers, or, of course, that shot of Madeline by the Golden Gate Bridge that's gained iconic status. And I'd posit that it's iconic for actually being about making an iconic image. A woman putting down flowers for Carlotta Valdez, a woman she supposedly doesn't know, according to Mastermind Elster. And when she goes in, Scotty enters into her movie, so to speak. Now it's time for Madeline to bring dialogue into what's been an otherwise wordless movie to him, more like a silent film, albeit Herman is always there for us. I kind of wonder what sort of music Scotty may have in his head. And then by the time it gets to locations like the Redwood Forest, or by the ocean, oh, that embrace, with the crashing of the waves seeming so over the top that it can't help but be part of the staging. And then of course, when it's at the church in the tower, the quote movie that Judy Come Madeline is putting on is like this grand operatic symphony so by the time he has his feverish, red-blinking-light nightmare, 
He is at points fascinated in it as he walks to the grave and completely horrified that disembodied Jimmy Stewart head coming at the screen, changing in different colors. It's telling to me that Midge leaves the film before this one year later, uh, final 30 minutes happens, and who seems to be in the movie as Scotty's anchor to reality. She's the platonic friend who is, you know, a normal woman who can kid and be sympathetic, but is her own woman. The opening scene with them is interesting, by the way. I keep wondering why Hitchcock has a slightly different close-up angle on her at times, like it's tilted above her so we don't see her eyes when Scotty brings up things when they're, like when they were briefly engaged, that one of those dizzying, puzzling mo moments that may be obvious, but I didn't get it. Sorry for this digression, but maybe it has something to do with Hitchcock and women. I'm not sure. Perhaps if one wants to get more personal, psychological, Midge is Alma Hitchcock, his wife and the one who is really there for him the most, whether he wants it or not. But really, an underrated shot in the film is her exit from the film, as she walks slowly down the corridor at the hospital, with no place anymore as Scotty is about to rebuild his own fictions. And what of Judy in this Life's Like a Movie scenario? that I posit Vertigo is genius at. Maybe a flaw, not a great one, but a small one, is that we don't get to know too much about her before Hitchcock and Taylor do the thing of suddenly making it, if only suddenly, uh, subtly, her movie for the rest of the 30 minutes. And it's only once John Ferguson, detective again for a brief time, notices the necklace and snaps back into it that it kind of becomes his movie again. We learn a tiny piece from what she tells him, that she's from Kansas, she has a mother, no father, etc., and is a, you know, normal working girl. Is she? We have to take the movie's word for it, but the thing I did find complex about her is that, simply, she stays around. She could leave easily. She's ready to pack up her suitcase and leave San Francisco. Why still holding on to that great suit, I don't fucking know. But what is Judy really like when she's out of the gray suit and blonde hair and letting herself be more carefree? See below, uh, see in the odds and ends about that in a moment. We don't quite get to see it, but I can let go that go amid everything else that works in the film. The point I'm making with all of this, and by the way, what happens when Scotty gets his movie vision back of Madeline coming out of the door, that music swelling as if Herman and the orchestra are in the same space of them, a la the man who knew too much, and how he gets back into his setting, seeing the stable and the horses, and then goes on to, one can read between the lines, having wild fetishistic sex with this cosplay makeover victory. And when Scotty finds out he's fooled, and then the very end where, tellingly, we do not see Judy fall from the tower since by this point for Scotty, the movie's over. There's no way we can see that now. Is this Hitchcock's movie is in its way underrated for how much it gets right about how we humans make a cinematic experience. And what is a cinematic experience if nothing else than being part of what Roger Ebert called the machine for empathy. Why does Scotty care so much more about Madeline? Is it love? Doesn't love meaning fully getting to know a person? But doesn't cinema do that, or try to do, when it's at its most pure? We say about characters in movies, 
I loved that so-and-so. It may depend on how much depth we get, doesn't it? What could be the most provocative question, and so obvious on the face of it with Vertigo, is that Scotty puts himself into Madeline's position. What happens if you're becoming mad or becoming possessed by something that is from another spectral realm, from Among the Dead, as the original title was for the film, by the way, and that feeling of death is all around? This brings me back, finally, to the color green. There is a lot of red here, of course, like the interior set of Ernie's, or even the Golden State Bridge itself, or even the jewel in the necklace that Carlotta come Judy wears. What about green, though? Is this symbolic for death? Why is green such a strong, demanding sort of color? It surrounds from the outside around Judy when she's put into that holy shit, this is an astonishing shot image of her in her room, all in black silhouette with the green backdrop from outside. What does this mean for her? Or for Scotty? Is he in love with a dead object? And for her, is she letting this surround her? Or, hey, these are questions for the next five times I watch this film. And now for some odds and ends. Number one. I laugh pretty much every time Hitchcock shows us what Midge, uh, she's played by uh, Barbara Gelgetis, by the way, has been working on. Her version of the Carlotta Valdez portrait with herself. Incidentally, the painting that Madeline is looking at in the museum is, curiously enough, not a real painting as far as it being a work of art outside the film. It was created especially for the production. And early on when Vera Miles was going to be in the picture as Madeline, Madeline Judy, a version of her was done up. Number two. I think this film is actually in a way more a cunning triumph for Hitchcock over the Hayes Code for the time. Of course, his big victory was to come in a couple years in Psycho uh, as he was pressured to cut out the shower scene and to soften other things. Yet seeing Vertigo, I think there's a part that people take for granted. <coughs> the ending is in its operatic intent and execution from the ascent up the stairs to the final words spoken and emotion between the characters at the top the appearance of the nun like she's death and then how scotty stands on the edge looking down but it wasn't the ending seen in certain european markets where there was a demand that the villain not get away with a crime and an alternate ending was shot with midge listening to the radio about Elster's capture, and then Scotty joins her in the room looking out the window. Shit. In the U.S., by the end of Vertigo, we don't really see Gavin Elster get his justice for the murder of his wife. One may assume he'll get his, but the ending isn't really about that. It's about these characters, Judy and Scotty, and Elster, while really being the one who orchestrated everything, is gone. I'm not sure if perhaps things had eased a little by 1958, but it occurred to me in the viewing seeing it that it was a nice piece of work that Hitchcock did with the ending. Perhaps because we're more con concerned about the emotional fallout between these two, the one who would, by the usual code standards, need to be brought to justice, was, if not an afterthought, then not needing the consideration. Nice move. Number three. Thanks to good old... I am DB Trivia. I learned before going into the tank that one of the interesting things about the shoot was that 
Kim Novak decided to go brawless during her scenes as Judy, aside from being put back into the Madeline uniform, of course. I almost wish I hadn't known that, as I hadn't picked up on it before the multiple times I'd seen it, again, also on the big screen, as I couldn't not notice it in my subsequent viewings. Like, it's practically distracting how nipply Novak is. But hey, good actor's choice and stark contrast between playing two characters. And four, I've neglected to talk about Jimmy Stewart up till now. He is a key component for why this film is so powerful. I don't necessarily agree that he was acting against type. He could do so many different kinds of characters, and by this point in the 50s had been acting with Anthony Mann in some of the toughest westerns ever. See him in The Naked Spur and you'll see one wicked son of a bitch. So he wasn't beyond playing characters with psychological complexity. On the contrary, he could gravitate toward it. This is where it happened. And the two of you hid back there and waited for it to clear, and then you sneaked down and drove into town. Is that it? And then you were his girl, huh? Well, what happened to you? What happened to you? Did he ditch you? Oh, and Judy, with all of his wife's money and all that freedom and that power, and he ditched you. What a shame. And he knew it was safe. He knew you couldn't talk. Did he give you anything? It's the money. And the necklace. Carlotta's necklace. There was where you made your mistake, Judy. You shouldn't keep souvenirs of a killing. You shouldn't have been... You shouldn't have been that sentimental. I loved you so, man. Buddy. Yet at the same time, on the surface, he gives off a slightly folksy charm and appeal that made him the star he was. He was loved by the East-West Coast liberal elites as much as he was by middle and rural America. He was just, you know, likable on screen, what is dubbed in some places as an everyman. I think Hitchcock knew this, and despite later saying, probably in one of his cold funks he could get into, that Stewart was, quote, too old for the part in retrospect, he was the perfect choice for John Scotty Ferguson. While this character somehow gets absorbed into the own movie he is first allowing and then becomes an active participant in, we have to empathize with him too, on some level. I think what made me question things upon first seeing it again this time, as far as the stuff with Judy being so put under Scotty's thumb and becoming a quasi-prisoner of his image of her, was that I tried to distance myself from getting too invested in Stuart to try to put a so-called critic's cap on. This may have been not so much a wrong but unnecessary decision. I think once I was going deeper into this so-called tank, I found a lot more to dig into Stuart, and that there was more of a gradual but rather incredible arc that made me love him more in the film. Because of this everyman quality, it makes it all the more tragic when he's forcing Judy into this kind of position, like... Man, no, don't do that. Come on. This is the star stripping away any of his possible devices, any of the, aw, oh, shucks, charm that he had early on. And it's staggering and still shocking after all this time. But that's just who he was. What an actor. What a director. 
What a film! It's too late. It's too late. There's no bringing her back. God have mercy. 